Our Father, we thank you that on this day we can rejoice because we see evidence of your faithfulness through the night this past week. We ask our Father for the time that we're going to have today. May it be a time that instructs us and causes us to have more and more confidence in the things that you say in your word. Father, we realize that there are people that we know dearly who have suffered great loss. And we recognize that your presence is the only thing that can compensate for all of that. So we ask our Father that you would be uh, close to those people and that they would realize that they are loved and cared for. We ask our Father that as we minister uh, in our individual area of gift and expertise, that it would be a source of blessing to these folks. May our Father this day be a day that is used in our life, and we ask that you would be pleased to allow us to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are studying the subject of archaeology. Last week we kind of introduced the idea, and uh, it is technically not a Bible study per se, like we go through a passage, but we are looking at basic evidence for the Bible, and I have suggested to you that archaeology is a handmaid to the truth of Scripture. It, uh, it is supportive of the truth of Scripture. Not everybody that studies biblical archaeology feels that way. <clears throat> if you could possibly believe it, there are people who study biblical archaeology in an attempt to disprove the Bible. Can you imagine possibly? Anyway, there are, there are people like that out there. And so uh, uh, it's important for us to realize that uh, sometimes we're picking and choosing a little bit, and hopefully we're being honest with the facts, honest with the details. The very second time I ever went to Israel, uh, I went to Israel the very first time in 1972, then I went again in 1990, which, you know, I'm not bragging or anything, 18 years between them. But our guide that second time was a fellow named Steve Langford. He had a PhD, I don't know where it came from. But his definition of archaeology was, you know what, I thought about it all week. What did I say? I said, he, oh, he said, it's an exact science based on subjectivity. <laughs> uh, so anyway, well, let me, if I may, uh, and I showed you a textbook that I was using last week uh, by a fella named uh, uh, Randall Price, and uh, I am borrowing heavily from that textbook with regard to what I'm going to show you right now. But let me, if I may, show you some advantages or benefits of biblical archaeology. First of all, confirming the word of the Bible. Confirming the word of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean by that, or let, let me explain what he means. Do you remember when the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt 
They did not follow the coastline of the Mediterranean, go directly to the land of Israel or Canaan. And do you remember the reason the scripture gives as to why they didn't do that? You remember? They, they didn't know what? Three-letter word. Starts with, a, starts with a W, ends with an R, and the middle letter is A. So they didn't know war. And now the interesting thing is uh, God directed them to go south to Sinai, and we're going to look at that today. But the reason he didn't want them to go along the coast of Plains is they had been slaves all of their life. And if they had gone directly, they would have encountered the Egyptian army that was spread across a desert area to keep, well, basically, they were the border patrol. The border patrol under Trump, not, okay. <laughs> anyway, they were, uh, they were the border patrol. And uh, God knew that if they encountered that, they would have freaked out. They would have wanted to go back to Israel or Egypt, and they kind of wanted to do that anyway after a while. But the interesting thing is uh, we have archaeological evidence that is far removed from the Bible, from Egypt, that indicates that there was a border patrol along there. That's one reason. And let me just quickly, uh, correcting the wording of the Bible, throughout the translation of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, because of the Hebrew, there are words which are called hapax legomena. Does anybody know what that word means? Yes, David. It only appears once in Scripture. It only appears one time in the Bible. And there are a lot of them. Now, the only problem is... When it comes to translating some of those Hebrew and Greek words, we don't know what they mean because we can't compare another passage. Well, it just so happens that there's archaeological evidence that uses that word in another context. We can look at those documents and figure out what the words are supposed to mean. So that's the second, clarifying the world of the Bible. This is an interesting one because there are many invasions by outside forces, like the Egyptians, the Hittites, other armies outside of Israel, where they talk about invading Israel that the Bible never mentions, because that's not the intent of the Bible. The Bible does not give us a comprehensive history of everything that went on in the land of Canaan. It only gives us the comprehensive history of God unfolding the way of salvation to mankind. That's the intent. But when we look at clarifying the world of the Bible, we can see that these outside documents make reference to the children of Israel in the land of Palestine, in the land of Canaan, even though the Bible never mentions it. So that's the third one. And we'll be looking at, and then the last one is complementing the witness of the Bible, and that's kind of similar to number, uh, number three. Now, I don't think I have as much information today as I did last week, 
but we might not even get through the information for this week. All right, so you understand that. Now, if I have any problem, I'm going to call on Marcia right over here because she has been to Egypt as I have. Has anybody else been to Egypt? All right, that's fine, no problem. Now, let me talk a little bit about Egypt and the geography just a little bit. What I am going to show you over the next five to 10 minutes, I wish I knew the first time I went to Israel, or excuse me, Egypt. Uh, so this is gonna give you as good an overview from the history and geographical perspective as you can possibly get. And why they didn't do this for me when I first went there, I don't know. Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt. Why is it called Lower and Upper? Elevation. elevation. It's not a matter of north and south, it's a matter of elevation. Obviously this area is higher in elevation. The Aswan Dam was put right there at that one spot. Why did they put the Aswan Dam in? Because every spring the Nile would overflow and they wanted to control it. Very similar to what we had here in Utah. When the early pioneers came, they went up to Trial Lake and all those lakes up in the Uintas, and they put dams up there. And you can go up there right now and you can see all of these different dams so they can control the flow of water all summer long, as opposed to just uh, the spring runoff. Now, ancient Egypt, was divided into two regions, Upper and Lower Egypt. Lower North Egypt consists uh, of the Nile River Delta made by the river as it empties into the Mediterranean. Upper or Southern Egypt was a long narrow strip of ancient Egypt located south of the Delta. And we have seen that. Now, looking at the whole history of Egypt, and this I think is interesting. From the time of Mens, which is way, way back, all right, way, way, way back, probably 3000 BC, there are 30 dynasties. You remember what a dynasty is? It is a family, a single family. And when you have a situation where you have a series of strong leaders in a family and then you have a couple weak leaders, another family comes in and takes over. So 30 dynasties over their entire history. Historians divide the time span into three kingdoms. Old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom. Ooh, that was original. How's that? Really original. Well, <laughs> they didn't see it like this, but this is the way the historians are dividing it so that we can understand a little bit. Pharaohs, the Egyptian kings representing a united Egypt. I'll show you more about that in just a minute. But you can see a dynasty, a line of rulers in one family. That's the key. The next thing is there are two main capitals in ancient Egypt. The one up there in the north called Memphis and they got the name Memphis from Tennessee. You understand? No. <laughs> Memphis and down here at Thebes. 
The modern day for these areas is up there around Memphis is the area of Cairo. Down here in Thebes, the modern area is Luxor. So those are the two names that have shifted. There's approximately 400 miles between there. Uh, one of the interesting things about Egypt is that all of the pyramids are on the west side of the Nile and the Valley of the Kings down here by Thebes or Luxor is on the west side of the Nile. Why do you think it's on the west side of the Nile? Anybody? You should all be able to figure that out. Sunrise, sunset, you get it? That's, uh, that's how they, life was on this side of the Nile, death is on this side of the Nile. Very, very interesting how they work that out. Now, kingdoms of ancient Egypt. Old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom. What they have listed here is the united Egypt in this entire area. And you can see as the kingdoms, I'm gonna use the word evolve, all right, or develop, they cover more and more geographical area. Now, let me go on, because the clock is moving. The kingdoms of Egypt, along the top, again, old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom. And if you look closely, huh, my little red lines moved on me, but that's all right. Here's another thing I want you to notice. Between each kingdom, there is an intermediate. That is an era of time when the dynasties were weakest and outside invaders came in and kind of took things over in Egypt, all right? So you have old, middle, and new kingdom. Between each of these are the first intermediate, second intermediate, and third intermediate. Does that make sense? Good, all right? Let me go on just a little bit further. Here is a timeline. It gives you a little bit of the idea as far as the dates are concerned, you have Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom, and then you have First Intermediate, Second Intermediate, Third Intermediate between these two kingdoms. During the Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, and New Kingdom, there are a series of dynasties. The last dynasty in each era is weakest, so that allows outside invaders to come in for a while. Then you have a strong family develops and they start the middle kingdom. Then families get weak and then you have outside invaders again coming in. By the way, this is extremely sketchy, all right? You understand that. Now, the 18th dynasty is during the time of Moses. That's crucial and it is in the New Kingdom. And you will notice that it is right about here, which is going to be around 1400 BC. Another thing that is important to realize, 
You see what kingdom the pyramids are built in right here? The old kingdom. And I didn't have my gun out. <laughs> Just your camera. You know, my daughter put that thing on there. I'm going to have to talk to her about that. <laughs> Is there a reason why it always does that? It, you, you're trying your hard drive. It's, it's, it's comic. <laughs> It's comic relief, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, let's get down here where we're supposed to be. I, uh, I make no bones about the fact that uh, I am cute computer illiterate, all right? No bones, whatever. <sighs> okay, don't breathe. <laughs> All right, notice closely. Where is Abraham? Middle kingdom. Where are the pyramids? Old kingdom. Do you realize when I was growing up, I was kind of told that when the Egyptians had the Israelites as slaves in Egypt, they built the pyramids. That's not true. Do you realize that the pyramids were a thousand years old when Abraham saw them? That's incredible. A thousand years old when Abraham saw it. I went to Egypt back in 1972 for the very first time. It was the first time I was ever outside the country. I went on a three-week tour, a week in Egypt, a week in Turkey, and then finally a week in Israel. Egypt is the first place I went. I was frankly overwhelmed. Of all of the places that I had been in the Middle East, now this is just me, it may not be your uh, impression, of all of the places I was in the Middle East, I will have to tell you that Egypt just overwhelmed me. Maybe it's because it was the first thing I saw. But these pyramids date back almost 5,000 years, which is amazing. It's just amazing. The technology that these people had back then, and I said this last week, I don't think people are getting smarter. I think these people were just amazing how they did all this. But uh, the biggest one is the one right here in the foreground. And uh, back then, I don't think they have, they allow it now. Back then we were able to go all the way down into where the Pharaoh was buried, which is again amazing. That's another view of them. <clears throat> By the way, that is a father-son thing, and the largest one is the father, and then the son's a little smaller, and then the grandson's a little smaller than that. This is the sphinx that is right out in front of those three pyramids of Geza. 
And uh, we can thank Napoleon's army for shooting off the nose of the Sphinx. Uh, again, these things date four to 5,000 years old. How did they know how to do this back then? How did they have the equipment to do all this stuff back then? Well, then those guys, guys in those little silver ships. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. <laughs> right. You're fine, you're fine. Okay. Um, this is probably, according to the Egyptologists, this is probably the oldest pyramid uh, in Egypt. And it probably dates back even six to 6,000 years. Uh, Where, where's that camp? That is a little, that's probably about 20 miles south of the other pyramids. And again, everything is on the west side of the Nile. And you just go inland from the Nile, probably four, five, six miles. Yeah. And everything is desert. I mean, everything is desert. It, were it not for the Nile and the fact that they could take water out of the Nile and irrigate the areas to the side of the Nile, Nile would be, or Egypt would be an absolute wasteland. Now, what we're going to do is go south to uh, Thebes. We're going 400 miles south. This is during, not the old kingdom, but the new kingdom. We're skipping the, uh, the middle kingdom, all right? This is the temples of Karnak. And this would be the time after the children of Israel had left Egypt. But one of the things I want to point out, and I, I, when I was there, we walked right down through there. We were the only tour group there. And a lot of these pictures, you're going to see various tour groups in there. But again, the architecture is just overwhelming. You say to yourself, how did they get those big, huge stone beams on top of those columns? I don't know. It just, it's overwhelming. And of course, the Greeks did much the same thing. But uh, you can see these things. Uh, it, it overwhelms you. Because we're not talking, you know, hundreds of pounds. We're talking hundreds of tons as far as the weight of each of these things. Did you guys go to Luxor? Did you? Was that overwhelming or what? It, it, it blows your mind. It just absolutely blows your mind. Now, here's some other uh, of the columns with, again, the stone beams way on top. This is, in my opinion, uh, among one of my favorite spots. Do you remember the princess that took Moses out of the water? Evangelical scholars believe that was a princess named Hatshepsut. This is her funeral tomb right here. And when we were there uh, in Egypt, and we were down around Luxor and, uh, and Thebes, uh, we were running short on time, and the bus driver pulled in to the driveway, let us take pictures from the bus, and then he pulled out and took off. I wish I had been able to get out, but uh, let me just give you some pictures uh, of this, the way it's set in the, uh, in the side of the cliff there. 
Uh, by the way, can you tell there are a lot of tourists there? I think there's probably 10 tours at this spot right here on that photo. All right, now, I've got 20 minutes, 25 minutes to get to the Bible lesson. The date of the Exodus, that's what I want to talk about today. And uh, it is a, what you might call an archeological bone of contention. Conservatives are one area, liberals are one area, and then there are people that totally reject the Bible who say the whole story of the Exodus is nothing but a myth. All right? So that's where we are. And I'm going to suggest to you that there are not dates of the Exodus, but there is a single date of the Exodus. Okay? I had to get that in there. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to 1953. How many of you were born? Good. Most of you. And all of you have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. Cecil B. DeMille was the director. He was very famous for the silent movie in the early 20th century. And just before he died in 1959, he put out this movie. And of course, we all remember this famous, uh, <coughs> by the way, who was that? Charlton Heston. And what is he famous for other than being Moses in this movie? NRA. He's a member of the NRA. All right. <laughs> I had to get that in. I had for Dave's benefit. He was for a while. <laughs> All right. Now, who's that guy? Ramesses. Yule Brenner, and he was he played the part of what? The favorite Ramses. Ramses the second. Now, if you know anything about biblical history, when Cecil B. DeMille made the movie, did he, adopt, did he adopt the conservative point of view of biblical numbers, or did he adopt the liberal view of the biblical numbers? Let me give you a hint. It starts with an L. <laughs> He's, he adopted the liberal view rather than the conservative view. And of course, then you remember that culprit there in the back. So, Jules Brenner played Ramses II, and he is the one that Charlton Heston had the conflict with, all right? So, let's talk a little bit about the Exodus. <clears throat> Don't be alarmed. There is no direct archeological evidence that the Exodus ever took place. Nothing, absolutely nothing. The only record of it that we have is in the scriptures. Why would there be no direct archeological evidence? There are some couple reasons. Number one, the Egyptians no precedent exists to ever record anything that is negative. <clears throat> they never recorded their defeats in battle. They never recorded their setbacks. We have zero record 
that the ten plagues ever existed in Egypt from the history of Egypt. They just don't record it. They pretend it doesn't exist. It is the original fake news. Fake news. <laughs> it really is. It, it's been around for a long time, okay? Now, the second thing. For the Israelites, like all nomads in the desert, they are archaeologically invisible. If you have a group of people camping in a desert and they're moving from place to place to place, they're not going to build anything. As soon as they leave, they're gone. Almost no evidence. And all it takes is a windstorm in the desert and it covers up everything. The only evidence that there might be in Sinai that the, the Israelites were ever there is what? Anybody? Graves. Huh? Graves. Graves. Lots and lots and lots of graves. Two million skeletons throughout. But, hey, that's what? 4,000 years ago? They didn't, there weren't the techniques. They did not, the Israelites did not use the techniques of, of mummification. mummification right. you know? So there's you know, any length of time in the, they, in the desert and everything is dust again. The wild animals could come and tear those skeletons apart. Uh, the dust could bury them. We, we just don't know. There's just no archaeological evidence at all that the Israelites were ever in the desert. Now, hang on. It gets good. This is the negative side. What is the biblical evidence for the existence, or for the uh, Exodus? This is what you might call the indirect evidence. We don't have any direct evidence, but we do have indirect evidence. What is the indirect evidence? Number one, an unbroken tradition. The Passover has been to celebrate the existence or the coming into uh, existence of the nation of Israel. For 3,500 years, every year, the Jews have celebrated their coming into existence as a nation. And even though we have no evidence of it, there it is. Uh, in order for a nation to exist, you have to have three things. You have to have a common people, you have to have a common constitution, and you have to have a common land. Now. There's a common people that got to Sinai, they got a common constitution, they got to the land of Palestine or Canaan, and they finally got their common land. So it was a process whereby they became a nation, but the absolute original is the Passover, when the death angel passes over and he sees them and they become a nation. Another interesting thing, and that is, apart from the narrative in Exodus chapter 1 through 15, it is mentioned or referred to 120 times in the Old Testament. Now, if it, were if it were mentioned just one time, that would be enough. But the fact that this extended na narrative in Exodus is there, and then it is mentioned or referred to 120 times, 
almost seals it in concrete. Third thing, it is repeatedly used to illustrate the divine event of salvation by God in the Old Testament. In fact, it is the greatest illustration that is used by just about all prophets that make reference to it of God's ability to rescue a nation and a people from slavery and sin, which is quite fascinating. All right, let's move on. This is what I showed you last week. This is basically the history of Israel as it is recorded in the Old Testament. And we discover that the uh, years up to the Exodus are basically 600, where you have Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Joseph, I'll get it right. And then you have the exile in Egypt. Then you have 400 years where the judges are in control and the, uh, Joshua comes in, captures the city. And then of course you have approximately 500 years whereby the, uh, the monarchy exists. If I move too fast, please forgive me. Three main dates are mentioned in the Bible. Three main dates. First of all, Solomon building the temple. And this date we believe to be 966. The reason we believe that is there is a Bible scholar who, uh, who long since has gone to be with the Lord named Edwin Thiele. And he did an extremely comprehensive study of virtually all numbers and all events throughout the Old Testament. And he compiled a chronologically, and you're probably very much aware of the fact that the, old, the further back we go into the Old Testament, the less certain we can be of certain fixed dates. But there are certain dates and this one is absolutely certain. Just about virtually all scholars, all scholars, evangelical and liberal, buy into this date right here. All of them, across the board. Now, the next one is the date of the Exodus. 1446, <clears throat> exiled into Egypt. Let's look. Whoops. Let's look at a couple passages, because since this is a Bible church, we ought to look at our Bible. <laughs> if I don't, you just never know. All right, I want to look first of all at uh, Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 40. Uh, and when it comes to the numbers of the Bible, please realize that one of the things that is happening across the board, particularly on the part of liberal scholarship, is they're discounting the numbers. Have you all heard? Well, the, the Bible really wasn't created in six literal days. That's just a story. The interesting thing is if you deny the literal six-day creation in Genesis, what do you think you do to the numbers when you come to the book of the Revelation? 
you deny those too. So you've denied the literal numbers at one end of the Bible, the literal numbers at the other end of the Bible. What do you think you're going to do with all the numbers in between those two books? You're going to deny them. Well, hey, we're hardcore here. We believe the numbers. So look, if you will, Exodus chapter 12, starting with verse 40. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came about at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. To the very day. Drop down, if you will, to verse 51. And it came about at that same day that the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. 430 years from the time Joseph brought Jacob down to Egypt until they were released from captivity is 430 years. So they're in an exile land for 430 years. A professor of mine at Dallas Seminary used to like to say, God developed the land or the nation of Israel in the womb of Egypt. And then it was time for the nation to give birth. He took them out of Egypt. I think that's a rather interesting description. Another verse of scripture that is important is over in 1 Kings chapter 6. And this particular verse is a stellar verse, if I can put it like that. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Now came about in the 480 year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in which they, uh, in which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. This is Solomon building the temple in his fourth, the fourth year of his reign, exactly 400 years after, after they come out of the land of Egypt. So what do you have? You've got two passages of scripture with specific numbers that give us a fixed date. So. If this date is absolutely certain and we go back 480 years, we're going to be at 1446. If this date is certain and we're building on that date, when Jacob entered the land of Egypt and blessed the sons of Israel, it goes back to 1876. Now, let me show you one more date in Scripture. And I'm looking at Judges chapter 11, verse 26. Judges 11, 26. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I want you to notice specifically at the very last line that Jephthah, who was one of the last judges before Samuel, makes the comment that we have been in this land for 300 years. 
You know, the United States hasn't even existed as a nation for 300 years. Now, what we're doing is we're spreading out a thousand years, almost, over a thousand years during this time. Okay, let me, if I may, move a little quickly here. So you've got the Exodus and you've got the temple. And we are suggesting based on scripture that it is 480 years. Now, for a moment, and it's based on a biblical text of scripture, and this is, this is if you please, a stake in the ground as far as archeology span is concerned from our perspective, evangelical perspective. <laughs> there is a late date and there's an early date. The late date is based on the movie, The Ten Commandments. <laughs> now you will notice that what we have is the temple, the beginning, beginning of the construction is 966, and the Exodus, according to liberal scholarship, is 1,270 BC. Now, can you see a problem there? And the reason they say that is because they want Ramses to be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But there is a definite problem in that if you do the math, 304 years does not add up to 480 years. What are they doing with the biblical numbers? They're just tossing this out. Hey, forget it. We can't, we can't trust the biblical numbers. Now, admittedly, this is based on archaeology from their interpretation. You remember that? Their interpretation of archaeology. We have a slightly different interpretation of archaeology. They are basing it on their brand of archaeology. You remember what I said right at the beginning of the class? Archaeology is an exact science based on subjectivity. No. That's exactly what they're doing. Now, next week, when we look at the conquest, I will talk a little bit about why we really solidly believe that the Exodus is the early date. And so, let's go to the early date. Again, we don't deny the existence of Ramses. He was probably the greatest of all of the pharaohs. But one of the things we do do is recognize that if we're going to take the biblical numbers seriously, it has to be dated to a man named Amenhotep II. He's the guy. And so, when we look at the data, one of the things that we discover is that it comes out very, very nicely to 4.1446. Does everybody follow what I am saying here? That's crucial. Let me tell you an interesting little story. Uh, when I was in Egypt, and if you ever have a chance, go, but trouble is, it's, it's got, you know, do you realize I went to Egypt? and Turkey and Israel. 
between my third and fourth year of grad school at Dallas Seminary, I went with Dr. Walke and Bruce Campbell, or uh, Bruce Walke and Don Campbell, I get it right. Uh, you know that it only cost me $1,200, and I thought, how am I ever gonna pay for this? I just looked this morning at the cost of a tour, which is only a week long in Israel. $4,600. So if you're planning on going, you better save your shekels. That was Charlie Dyer's tour this coming March, which is astounding. When we were in Egypt, we went to the Cairo Museum. And when you go to the Cairo Museum, there is a room with all of the mummies there. And you can, you can go around, they've, they've got all of them encased right there, and there's probably about 20 mummies in these glass uh, boxes. And you can go around and you can see Ramses and you can see Amenhotep. Well, the interesting thing is, I had just had an archeology span course at Dallas Seminary. Dr. Walke was my professor for that. He was along on this particular tour. And here we are in the uh, room where all the mummies are, and there they are stretched out in this glass thing. And Dr. Walke says, I wonder how tall he was. So Dr. Walke, <laughs> PhD from Harvard, you know, PhD from Dallas, he lays on the floor and he sizes himself up and he discovers that Amenhotep II is about six feet tall. So just so you know. Uh, but I thought that was really kind of an interesting, uh, you know, here's this guy is so thirsting for wanting to know how tall this guy is. Anyway, Amenhotep II, that's, that's crucial. Now, the next time you see the Ten Commandments, you know, which may, it's a relic now, it's what is it, almost 70 years old? Uh, please insert the name Amenhotep II as opposed to Ramses II. We're not denying that the pharaohs existed, but when it comes to the biblical numbers, we have to be true to scripture. Why are they so set on Ramses? Why? why, why? Why? Why the liberals? Why, just I will explain a little bit of that next week, okay, okay Dave? Uh, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to lure you back in, but there is a definite. Well, let me. Let, uh, in a nutshell, I'll tell you. First of all, they are assuming, and you can study this out this coming week if you want. They are assuming that when the children of Israel invaded the land of Canaan. They went in and destroyed all the cities. So there would be a destruction layer or a burn layer during that era. And admittedly, during the period of the judges, there, were, there was civil war. There were outside invaders coming and destroying these cities. There are verses in the Bible that would completely and totally disprove that. You find those verses there, by the way, they're in the book of Deuteronomy. And you don't have to read past chapter 10 to find those verses, <laughs> they're there. Uh, so anyway, let me, let me go on. This is the root of the Exodus. This is the traditional route. There have been some attempts in recent years 
to say Sinai is over here as opposed to here. Give us a thumbnail sketch of what it's like at Sinai. You've been there. It's huge. It's huge. It's a huge mountain. And is it hot? It's really hot. How the children of Israel were down there without HVAC, I'll never know, but they were. So I, I saw this on the internet. I thought it might be interesting. It's amazing what you can get off the internet. This is probably tradi the traditional route of the Exodus. These are the different events that took place coming out of crossing the Red Sea and then the quail of manna. All of you know what the word manna means? What is it? What is it? What is it? How's that? Oh, food. No. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having Asian food cake for dinner every day? I don't know. It's amazing. And this is the uh, this is the sequence of, from Exodus to Deuteronomy of where these events took place. And you can see the first half of uh, Exodus down to chapter 40, and then Leviticus takes place at Sinai. Numbers 1 to 10 take place at Sinai, and then they start moving around, so forth. All right? Now, how many years was that journey? Well, it was two years to get down here. No, it was just several weeks to get down here. And then they stayed down at Sinai for two years. And then they left and went to Kadesh, where the spies go in. And they rejected. Uh, they said, oh, we can't do this because, uh, you know, the opposition is too great. And then God says, all right, well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll check out the next generation. And so they wander around in the wilderness. That's the problem right there. Where did they wander? We are guesstimating that they just wander around in that area up there. They're nomads. If you go to Israel someday and you get out into the, uh, the area of the wilderness south and east of Jerusalem, it is just as desolate as can be and you will be riding along in your bus, and one of the interesting things that you will see is you will see a tent out in the middle of nowhere, and you will see sheep around there. I don't know what the sheep are eating. They're just they're little tiny bushes coming up like that, and they just scour, and then when the vegetation is gone from that area, they move to another area. That's, that's how those nomads do it. All right, time is, uh, time is up. Thank you. I know I'm moving fast. But if you get, and I'm going to use one of Doug's terms, the takeaway. <laughs> That's his favorite line. I don't know where he got that line. He, I, I do know. He got it from John K. Wood at Philadelphia College of Bible. <laughs> the biblical numbers can be trusted. That's the key. Thank you. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's do it again next week.